Now, Carl, does music mean a lot to you? Yes, I, uh, I'm deeply attracted to music and uh, get a kind of uh, dependency withdrawal symptom when I'm away from it too long. Have you any skill yourself as a musician? I would say not, although I did play piano for 10 years until I uh, was able to escape from home and uh, be on my own. Do you sing? No, except in the shower. Oh, naturally. Whereabouts in the United States do you come from? Well, I was uh, born in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, mm -hmm. I teach at Cornell University, which is uh, also in New York State, but uh, I've been in uh, California for the last, uh, well, almost three years. I'll be going back to Cornell shortly. Were you one of several children? Yes, uh, I have a sister uh, seven years younger. Do you remember when you first began to be interested in astronomy? I do very, uh, very vividly. Uh, I was a small child, I don't know, five or, or so, and... Uh, Even with an early bedtime, in winter you could occasionally see the stars. Cities were not as polluted then as mm -hmm. now. And uh, they seemed to me interesting, strange, remote, different from uh, the neighborhood that I knew reasonably well. And I asked people, uh, older children, adults, what the stars were. And they said, uh, they're lights in the sky, kid. Well... <laughs> I could tell there were lights in the sky, but it seemed to me there had to be some, some deeper explanation. Uh, it seemed to me unlikely that there were just little lights, lamps hanging from, from the sky. Who put them there? What, what for? And so when I got my first library card, I uh, fairly breathlessly uh, asked the librarian for a book on stars. And she gave me one... Uh, which was uh, about people named Clark Gable and Gene Harlow. <laughs> I explained that wasn't what I wanted, and uh, after some confusion, I got the book that I did want and uh, um, turned the pages of this, you know, easy children's book and uh, finally came to what, uh, what I had been looking for, an astonishing statement that the stars were just like the sun, except immensely far away, mm -hmm. that the sun was a star, but just very close. And uh, I couldn't tell how close the sun was or how far you'd have to move it to make it as dim as a star, but I could tell that was a very big distance. And suddenly the scale of the universe opened up for me, uh, a very powerful emotional experience, which uh, I'm uh, still engaged in. You were only 16 when you entered the University of Chicago. I presume you'd taken a scholarship. Why Chicago? Was it the university of your choice? Oh, yes, very much. I, I had applied to a number of institutions and been accepted, but Chicago sent a brochure called uh, If You Want an Education. And the brochure went something like this. It said, uh, if uh, you want a school in which uh, sports are a, uh, a major consideration, and there's a picture of uh, football players battering each other, don't come to the University of Chicago. Turn the page. If you want a, a school in which uh, religious activities are a major part of what we do, there are people in pews, don't come to the University of Chicago. If you want a school in which fraternity and sorority life is uh, a major thing, don't come to the University of Chicago. You got about halfway through the book and it said, on a, one whole page, it said, but if you want an education, come to the University of Chicago. And it was the only university that um, advertised itself as providing an education. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was what I wanted, and it certainly did provide. A... And, well, obviously there were other activities. What were you interested in apart from astronomy and astrophysics? Well, uh, I was very active in, uh, in basketball and 
table tennis and uh, meeting members of the opposite sex and all, all those other things activities. that Chicago said it didn't provide. <laughs> <laughs> you took your PhD there and left to go to Berkeley as a research fellow. What was your project? When you get a PhD, there's uh, always an enormous amount of uh, topics that you didn't have time to complete, uh, mm -hmm. to pursue. And so there, there were a great many things that I, I did at Berkeley, but uh, my doctoral thesis was uh, mainly on the atmosphere of the planet Venus in an attempt to uh, explain the uh, apparently high surface temperature of Venus through what's called the greenhouse effect, the trapping of uh, infrared radiation by the, this massive carbon dioxide and water atmosphere. And uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, have been successful in the sense that subsequent space vehicle explorations of uh, Venus have uh, made a reasonably plausible case that it's a greenhouse effect that keeps the surface hot and that the surface is, in fact, hot. Well, it's a very different yeah. place from the Earth. Then you followed with a spell at, at Stanford University School of Medicine studying the origins of life. Yes, that's You were true. really taking a, a thorough background in your, in your subject. Well, I was always interested in that question and had, uh, even as an undergraduate, spent uh, summers working in, uh, in biology and, and genetics to try to provide some background in, mm -hmm. in that field. Then Harvard, the Smithsonian Observatory, and finally you settled down at Cornell in 1968. What was your assignment there? I'm a professor of astronomy and space sciences, and I also direct uh, the laboratory for laboratory, I guess you say, for, yes, plan yes. for planetary <laughs> studies. And uh, we're engaged in a fairly wide range of uh, investigations of uh, the nature of uh, the surfaces and atmospheres of uh, the other planets and, uh, and their moons, largely using uh, unmanned space vehicles, which uh, are uh, trickling out through the solar system in all directions at the present time. Was it the first laboratory of its kind? No, I would not say so, but uh, certainly one of the first. I presume the laboratory was tied up with NASA. Yes, all of the unmanned space vehicle, well, and, and manned uh, activities in the United States are, uh, are done by the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. And uh, they have had, uh, despite uh, extreme budgetary restrictions, uh, just success after spectacular success in exploring all the planets known to the ancients from you were Mercury opposed. to Saturn. You were opposed to the moon landings. Well, I was opposed to uh, attributing them to science. I was perfectly happy if they were uh, considered uh, political or uh, economic or historical or beat the Russians or whatever they were, but they were not fundamentally scientific. President Kennedy uh, said he was going to put a man on the moon and bring him back safely by the end of the decade. He did not say uh, he was going to discover the origin of the moon by the end of the decade. And uh, the amount of money spent on Apollo uh, may well have been an excellent investment, but it was not primarily a scientific activity. Mm -hmm. So I was opposed to beginning the Apollo program on grounds that uh, uh, would be attributed to science. And I was also opposed, somewhat paradoxically, to ending the Apollo program, because after this enormous initial investment had been made, there was a splendid system for exploring the moon. And uh, instead, uh, because it was only to show that we could do it, we stopped. There's a very uh, ironical and uh, clear demonstration of this. The last man to land on the moon was the first scientist to land on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> That's a rather cynical remark, yeah. Now, you worked, of course, on, on uh, a number of the unmanned space probes. The pictures that came back at the surface of Mars were incredible. 
And very exciting. Yes, I, I think so too. And machines up there have been digging holes, which seems uncanny. Well, we uh, we have done the, the first modest engineering works on uh, another world. We've uh, dug uh, little trenches in the Martian soil to uh, examine the composition of the soil and uh, see if there's any obvious signs of life. The missions we're talking about are called Viking, and they landed two of them uh, in 1976, each accompanied by its own orbiting vehicle, which was uh, overhead in the Martian sky. And these were the first spacecraft to uh, uh, land on Mars, the first spacecraft to survive on another planet for uh, more than an hour or so, and uh, represent, in my mind, a uh, critical moment in human history, a a very significant transition from being locked on the Earth and being able to go to other planets. And you've now mapped the surface of Venus. The surface of Venus has been uh, mapped very crudely by... uh, ground-based and uh, space orbital radar. But much more detailed mapping can be done by a devoted space vehicle in orbit around Venus. And uh, I very much hope that such a mission will be authorized in the near future. It has not yet been. Now, what about Saturn? Well, the uh, most recent explorations have been by two spacecrafts called Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, which uh, were launched in uh, late summer of 1977. And uh, the two spacecraft, one behind the other, flew by Jupiter and its rings, which in fact the spacecraft discovered, and its moons, and then were accelerated by Jupiter's gravity to an encounter with Saturn. The Voyager 1 encounter happened last November. The Voyager 2 encounter with Saturn will happen this coming August. Voyager 1 is then accelerated out of the solar system altogether, Voyager 2 will go on to make uh, the first look at the planet Uranus before it also is ejected from the solar system in uh, 1985. Now, what about the space shuttle? Well, it's a transportation system, and uh, it's a device to uh, get whatever you want up there. And so uh, it is uh, not primarily a scientific instrument. It has... uh, major military purposes, uh, at least some of which I I support. I believe that military reconnaissance satellites are stabilizing, that uh, if uh, no nation can uh, make major troop movements without other nations knowing about it, that is good for everybody. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, it'll be involved in communication satellites, which uh, have worked a revolution in technology. You can dial Japan direct. Uh, meteorological satellites, which are doing wonders in uh, helping to uh, forecast the weather. Earth resources satellites, which monitor the health of crops and uh, potential uh, mineral resources for prospecting and so on. But sending men up there is fairly pointless. Well, I believe that for the same investment of money, machines can do a better job than people for uh, any of the tasks we're talking about. But uh, that is not the direction in which we're going. And uh, the idea of shuttle is that uh, we'll be able to have a reusable launch vehicle so you don't throw it away after each use, which is what we've been doing so far. And there are good economic reasons for that. It is, however, the only system which we will have available for launching scientific satellites and probes to other planets. So uh, to that extent, it is a scientific mission, but it's not primarily scientific. Now, Carl, we're chipping away in search of knowledge at one or two near neighbors in space. 
But let me quote you once again. We live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star tucked away in some forgotten corner of the universe in which there are more galaxies than people. It's going to take a long time to get all that sorted out, isn't it? Yes, and a good thing to <laughs> give us something to do. Do you believe it would be presumption to think that only on Earth is there intelligent life? I do. I think it's a presumption in two different respects. Uh, one, the conceit that uh, we are especially intelligent, and two, that there is none elsewhere. Do you think life on Earth is intelligent enough to stop blowing itself up before well, it's investigated other planets? That's a difficult and tricky question. There's no doubt that we have the capability to uh, destroy our civilization and perhaps our species through the proliferation of nuclear weapons. At the same time, it's also clear that uh, we have uh, an enormous compassion for others and capability to do good and to act wisely. And the tension between these two forces, uh, which go deep into our evolutionary past, is uh, the major issue that faces us in this time, I believe. It's been said about you, you've written something like 300 scientific papers, written in scientific language for fellow scientists, and it's been said that you're too excited by your subject to undertake the slow, painstaking collection of data, which is usual. You want to put your ideas out first, to be, to be shot down if necessary. Well, I, uh, I certainly have spent a great deal of time in the collection of data, space vehicle missions, uh, often take uh, six to ten years from conception to actually acquiring the data. So uh, uh, you'll have to put the question to whoever, whatever anonymous source made that uh, remark. But I, I very much feel that it's important to put scientific results out before the public uh, in a timely manner because, uh, first of all, the public is tremendously interested in the results, and secondly, because the public pays for this sort of science and if we scientists expect the public to continue to support what we're doing, I think it's reasonably uh, urgent that the public understand what we're about. Right. Shostakovich, Symphony Number no. 11, the Houston Symphony Orchestra conducted by Leopold Stokowski. What does that music mean to you, Carl? Well, it, uh, it speaks to me. I feel strongly about it. But uh, I think if it were possible to uh, say in detail, in words what this was about, it would not have been necessary to write the music. I think the music speaks on quite a different level than words do. Now, as you've intimated, you believe in the popularization of, of science. You've written a number of scientific books for that uninstructed person known as the general reader. What was the, the first popular book? Well... In 1966, I did a book which was at least semi-popular with uh, a Soviet colleague, uh, I.S. Shklovsky, called Intelligent Life in the Universe. And uh, it was enormous fun, both because of the collaboration. We had never uh, actually met until long after the book came out. Mm. It was uh, a collaboration by mail. And uh, also because I discovered how much pleasure there was in trying to popularize science. So from time to time since then, I've uh, yes. tried to do some. The Dragon of Eden, that one you were Pulitzer Prize. What's that about? I haven't read that. The Dragons of Eden is subtitled uh, Speculations on the Evolution of Human Intelligence, and it's, uh, it's about how we got to be human. Uh, mm -hmm. Something about uh, the connection between our minds and our brains, and uh, about the evolution of our brains from very early times, from fish and reptiles and non-human primates to ourselves. 
and another more recent book, which we'll talk about in a minute. On one of the space probes, you sent out a disc, or there was sent out a disc, I believe you had a hand in it, of all sorts of music, speech, and sounds, in the hope that someday it might fall into the hands of the scientific-minded from another planet. The hands are equivalent organs. Yes. Uh, well, uh, these are the, the Voyager spacecraft that we talked about before that uh, have done this spectacular exploration of uh, the Jupiter and Saturn systems, and uh, due essentially to a quirk in celestial mechanics, these uh, spacecraft will leave the solar system forever. Their transmitters will be dead. They will not be calling attention to themselves. But uh, in the space between the stars, there's very little matter, and things tend to be preserved extremely well. The estimated lifetime of these spacecraft is about a thousand million years. So uh, long after uh, the British Isles, say, or North America are gone by the geological processes on Earth, these spacecraft will be still pristine in the dark between the stars. Therefore, we thought there was, over a thousand million years, some chance that uh, some other species of spacefaring civilization might uh, come upon this ancient, derelict, primitive ship and uh, heave to and uh, wonder who had made it. So attached to each spacecraft is a uh, phonograph record, a metal disc with instructions uh, for use written in what we hope is clear scientific language on the cover, yeah. and a cartridge and stylus. We, uh, we assume if they can find us in the dark between the stars, they'll uh, be able to figure out how to amplify the sounds. And uh, on the disc are uh, greetings of various sorts. We have 116... Uh, pictures encoded in digital form with instructions about how to reconstruct the pictures. Greetings in 60 human and one whale language, which there's no chance they'll understand. A sound essay on the evolution of the Earth. And uh, perhaps most relevant to us, an hour and a half of uh, what the New York Times called Earth's Greatest Hits. <laughs> in, uh, in the hope that uh, music would convey something more about us than uh, just our science and technology would. That was an interesting musical exercise to, to choose something that would still be fully appreciated in a thousand million years. By creatures very different from us. It of may course. be an impossible task. We thought it was uh, interesting to try. It was certainly inexpensive, and uh, I think there's something tremendously hopeful about uh, us sending greetings to creatures so far away in time and space that we could never hear anything back from them. In the past, there have been a number of spectacular television popularizations of, of major subjects, Kenneth Clark's Civilization, Bernofsky's The Ascent of Man, Attenborough on Natural History. Now you've tackled one, a 13-part serial called Cosmos. First, what does the title mean? What What is Cosmos? Cosmos is a uh, Greek word invented in... Uh, about the 6th century BC, which refers to the order and elegance of the universe. Not just the universe, but the, uh, the way in which it is constructed. What terms of reference did you set yourself for the series? Well, one of our principal objectives was uh, to convey the idea that science is accessible to a general audience, that it's fun, that it's exhilarating, that it's a delight. And given the entire cosmos to play with, we uh, certainly were able to pick and choose what to discuss. It is 
largely, but by no means wholly, oriented towards astronomy. We talk about the history of astronomical ideas, about the space vehicle exploration of the planets with lots of the pictures that we were talking about earlier in the program, about uh, galaxies, pulsars, quasars, the possibility of life elsewhere, the uh, grand cosmological questions about the origin and nature and fate of the universe, but also a wide range of other topics, including uh, Champollion's uh, decryption of Egyptian hieroglyphics, uh, a stunning computer animation uh, of uh, how the master molecule of life, DNA, works, and a uh, reconstruction that I'm very pleased with of the great million-volume library of Alexandria that was uh, put to the torch by a mob in the 5th century AD. Is there enough evidence to have built that reasonably effectually? Yes, there's a fairly good set of scholarly evidence on what the library and its attached research center, the Serapeum, were about. We had to take some liberties where we did not know what it was about. And we built the thing using a, uh, a stunning new technique called Magicam, in which, uh, in effect, I am shrunk down to about one inch in height and wander through this detailed model with all the shadows falling correctly. And uh, the thing has been... Uh, so successful that the Egyptian Tourist Bureau has been, I understand, inundated with uh, requests about how to visit it. <laughs> how long did it take to, to make the series? Cosmos uh, took something over three years to do and was uh, something like two years in actual production and uh, was a very grueling uh, task because we were concerned, on the one hand, to get the science right, uh, even things that we weren't uh, specifically talking about. We wanted sophisticated viewers to uh, not see any, uh, any contradictions with what we knew. On the other hand, we wanted it to be immensely accessible to a general audience, yeah. and that combination took some work. It's an international production, of course. It is, and uh, the BBC uh, has been one of our co-producers. Fifteen billion years of cosmic evolution in 13 hours. It's a tall order. <laughs> yes, and we certainly can't show it all, but we've... Uh, at least hit the highlights. Now, these Vangelis tunes are from the soundtrack of Cosmos. Yes, we made uh, an effort to be very ecumenical in the, the music for Cosmos, and we seem to have been successful. Uh, an enormous amount of mail talked to us about, uh, about the music. And, of course, you had a ball. You put in all your favorites. Uh, <laughs> well, I certainly had a chance to put in some of my favorites, but uh, many of the pieces were, almost all of them, chosen because they seemed appropriate for the Cosmos series. And all of the music that uh, is being played in this program has been used in Cosmos, and uh, a special record called The Music of Cosmos uh, is just coming out. We tried in Cosmos to appeal not just to the mind, but to the heart, and uh, music plays a very important role in that, of course. And there's a book to go with it, as one might expect. A big, glossy book with hundreds of color pictures. Which sequences in the series pleased you most? Well, I must say that the series far exceeded my fondest expectations before I began. Some sequences were just so much better than I had uh, at the very earliest stages imagined. For example, an extremely brilliant uh, computer scientist named James Blinn constructed a sequence on the mechanism by which DNA, the nucleic acid that is at the heart of life on Earth, works. It's never been done before. 
Not only do we see where all the atoms are, 30,000 atoms all in the right position, but uh, these molecules are kind of molecular machines. They articulate, they do things, they reproduce themselves, they correct any errors that they've made. And we see the mechanism of operation uh, at the heart of life. And it's done in just a breathtaking way. And uh, likewise, the, the simulation of the Great Library of Alexandria that I talked about, I think is stunning. Some of the historical reconstructions, for example, of the life of the uh, 16th century mystic Johannes Kepler, who was also the father of much of modern astronomy, was done, I think, in a very appealing way. Now, after this, well, anything at Cornell is going to be a bit of an anticlimax. No, <laughs> not at all, because science is so exciting and compelling that uh, as fun as all this was, uh, doing real science is still more fun, in, in my opinion. How good will you be as a castaway? Could you look after yourself? Are you a practical man? I think I would uh, probably be a spectacular failure as a, as a castaway, but uh, it would be fun to give it a try. Have you any hobbies that might be useful? Do you fish? Uh, no, I don't think I've ever done it in my life. No, well, I've tried, but uh, not successfully as a, as a youngster. Small boats? No, not at all. Would you try to get away? I guess I would uh, stay around for a while until I got completely bored and, and yes. then try to take off. See if how, I could. Much, how much boredom brings confidence. <laughs> <laughs> and one luxury to take with you, nothing of any practical use at all. I think I would take as large a reflecting telescope as you would let me. You can spend the evenings very nicely looking at the stars. Right. And one book, apart from the Bible and Shakespeare, which are already on the island. The books of no other religion, just just the Judeo-Christian tradition? I'm afraid so. There just isn't room. I <laughs> uh, guess then I would take the Boy Scout handbook in an effort to be as practical as I could. Right. And thank you, Carl Sagan, for letting us hear your Desert Island Discs. Thank you very much, Roy. I enjoyed it immensely. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone.